ACDC Reads is a one-woman bassoon read shop in Minnesota run by Ariel Detweiler, producing over 1,200 reads per year. Selling beginner and advanced level bassoon reads, ACDC Reads are hailed by customers for their even intonation, ease of response in all registers, warm tone quality, and strong low register. Every read is made from tube cane processed in-house to Ariel's specifications using Rigotti or Lavaro cane and a Rieger 1A shape. You'll also find bassoon-themed gifts in the shop, including greeting cards, stickers, artistic prints, and the ever-popular Blackwing Bassoon Pencil. Make sure to follow ACDC Reads on Instagram, where Ariel posts artistic photos and educational stories about her everyday experiences with readmaking. ACDC Reads is proud to sponsor Double Read Dish, sharing positive and uplifting interviews to inspire and connect the bassoon community around the world. Find ACDC Reads at acdcreads.com or at retailers like Chemical City Double Reads, Midwest Musical Imports, or Read Supplies Canada. Try out ACDC Reads today and let the read do the work. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartoncane.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. If I sound a little weird, um, I can't get my microphone to work. So I'm like doing a little bit of uh, makeshift record into this other thing. That was me last week. So except the problem was I didn't remember to bring my microphone. So uh... (laughs) the adapter that I have plugged in cost $50 after my last one broke on the Boulder campus so that we could do I know and you had to walk so far to find that thing and now it's like not even working I'm so irritated but <laughs> you know uh so yeah anyway if the sound sounds kind of off or weird that's why and listen we're doing our best it's the most saturated part of the semester it's treacherous right now and <laughs> we're all just struggling to keep our head above water in higher ed at least uh, have things been going for you things have been so busy on um, saturday uh, my colleague kim woolley and i hosted our double read workshop which was awesome we had a huge turnout and we had amazing guests, Leah Forsyth and Doug Bakkenhus from Northwestern State in Natchitoches, Louisiana, came and uh, sprinkled their brilliance all over the uh, School of Music. And uh, it was it was great, but I'm tired. <laughs> so that's how you say that college town name. I I've only Natchitoches. seen print. Well, there's Natchitoches, Louisiana. And Natchitoches, or, or uh, wait, no, it's Natchitoches, Louisiana, but it's spelled Natchitoches. Yeah, I would have guessed there were many more syllables than that, having yeah. all the imprint. And that's, fun fact, where Steel Magnolias was filmed. <gasps> oh, you can take oh a Steel God. Magnolias tour. No. you. We drove by the house, Malin's house. Malin's house. What about, what about Trudy's house? Wait, is it Trudy or Truly? It's Truly, isn't it? No, truly is from Sister Wives. Oh, I feel like the absolute worst elder millennial on planet Earth. Anyway, I want to go do that. Yeah, it's a really cute town. That's so exciting. Yeah, it was a great day. We had a huge turnout. <laughs> I'm responding more to Steel Magnolias oh, than Jesus. you double read did. <laughs> That's exciting too. Take your gems, Chalabay. Stop it, Mama. <laughs> 
Oh, it's been good. It's been good hanging on for dear life. Um, and actually, I thought that a good topic of today's dish, just kind of recapping life or getting perspective would be a fun game uh, that they play on the Real Housewives of New York reunions often, which is uh, Rose and Thorn, where you say a high point and, uh, you know, maybe something that could have been a higher point uh, for you recently. And uh, yeah, I thought that would I be I love the way you phrased that. Well, I don't want to be a low point. In your <laughs> a low point is that I'm not at the Steel Magnolias tour in Natchitoches, Louisiana right now. But <laughs> what, what what's your rose and thorn? Okay, so my rose is going to be um, the success of the events that I've been a part of lately. Double Reed Workshop, um, orchestra concerts. I played this really phenomenal chamber music concert last week, um, and I got to play a chamber music concert yesterday. So that has been super fulfilling and actually a big part of the rosiness of my rose is how much I've been able to practice. Mm. Um, I'm probably, this is the best I've ever sounded how I'm sounding right now. I'm really loving like my voicing and my articulation and, you know, my embouchure feels good. So yeah, this is, I think this is, probably the strongest that my playing has ever been so that's my that's the 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 prettiest rose of all the roses the rose is me (laughs) the rose is me (laughs) Uh, but it feels like a big luxury you know to be able to prioritize practicing like I have been able to do and a lot of that I will fully disclose is that my wife is taking on a lot of extra stuff so that I can practice. So uh, this is a team sport. It takes a village to raise an oboist. (laughs) It takes a village to keep the oboist happy. (laughs) But yeah, like every time I have a successful thing like you know double read workshop took a lot of planning and a lot of time Mm -hmm. and you know that doesn't happen in a vacuum that happens because my wife is able to like take on the stuff that I would normally be doing at home during that time so so yeah I'm extra grateful for that that's awesome Mm -hmm. what about your thorn Mm, my thorn would be it's kind of two edges to the same thing. Like it's really wonderful to to feel prepared mm-hmm. for stuff. Um, but I'm also so tired. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the amount of work that goes into every day is just so much more because right. of the extra um performing and planning that I've taken on this semester. Mm-hmm. And as you recall from my um, uh, New Year's resolution, like I resolved that I would prioritize practice. And so I have really um, held up my end of my own bargain and I have, you know, fulfilled that promise to myself. But on the other hand, it comes at a sacrifice of energy and sometimes sleep. And, you know, there are some aspects to that that are a little bit difficult. Um, But this is something I think that we all go through. You know, you have points in your life where you're just like, I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to do it. And you can't sit back. You can't relax. You can't. You just there's no TV. There's no like rest. It's just boom, 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 boom. I have to do it. And that's where I'm at right now. So it's really tiring. But in the end, it's worth it because the the work that I've been putting in for the past months have, has been paying off. Um, I practiced exclusively over winter break, and I've been able to maintain my practice schedule for the most part um, and just, like, really 
focusing and making it a sincere priority, mm-hmm. which means that I don't get couch time at the end of the day and mm-hmm. I don't, I don't get to go to bed early. Um, but, but yeah, that's my, that's my rose and my thorn at the same time. No, same. Uh, I'll kind of start with my thorn and it's, it's very similar. You know, I always say if you're practicing enough, probably other areas of your life are, uh, being impacted or, or given less attention. I've mentioned in passing, but I don't think I've been actually really real about it as, um, right now, my husband and I are preparing for this festival of contemporary art music, where we are the ensemble in residence. And we did a call for scores that has us learning a program of entirely new music to us. And then we're also doing, um, three other concerts for the festival. Um, So it's a, it's not around, it is uh, 21 pieces, including movements. Brand Um, new. And there, there are a couple pieces we've played before, three pieces we've played before, Um, but 17. Out of 21. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I guess 18 new then. Uh, Describe my face right now. (laughs) It's like how I've been feeling lately because of course it's a cool opportunity. I am Uh, you know, and so enthusiastic about new music. I'm so, I believe in the importance of supporting new composers and giving them attention and and whatnot. The amount of time that it takes to cover that much repertoire, I was just naive about. Mm. Which is wild because you are a, you are the, the best planner of your practice time that I've ever met. I think in that way, I overestimated myself. I think I'm like, oh, I've done lots of rep a million times before. And I didn't quite get how different this would be because of the amount, the newness, the nature of new music. And how sometimes Mm. it's just really hard. Like it's not um, 18 new romantic works to Mm -hmm. me, you know, it's 20, Mm -hmm. it's contemporary music. And it's also rehearsing. So Mm. I'm playing with my spouse. And so a lot of our time together is spent rehearsing. And um, like today, we both had a really busy day. So we had to do a run through starting before 7am to get it all in. And, you know, that's what being a professional calls for sometimes, you know, you have to make it work. But the intensity of making this work it's been a little hard to maintain a positive attitude about it and to not allow it to become burdensome. And I know I've talked about my meditation journey and my uh, accountability to my mindset. And this has been probably the first big obstacle in that, in terms of, you know, seeing the blessings in my life, seeing um, what an opportunity I have and how this aligns with who I am artistically and not just kind of, you know, feeling the strain of physically it's hard, mentally it's hard, logistically it's hard. So, but nothing is permanent and this too shall pass. And the next time we record a dish, it will be a thing that I accomplished that I'm proud of. And so I Mm -hmm. just keep trying to remind myself of that. But uh, I don't want to end without shouting out my rose. Um, And I actually have many roses. But um, today, so, uh, you know, I inherited a studio that had a lot of room for growth. And this is kind of the first year that I'm really seeing that growth. And we're still developing a studio culture, right? So uh, this was the first time I did a read midterm and where they had like, okay, you have to have this many blanks and this many blah and this many blah. And I uh, did not micromanage them. I was just kind of like, you're college students, you'll either do it or you won't. And so I walked in today, I didn't really know what I was going to find. And my student who's been struggling with read making the most just kind of doesn't come naturally to him. I walk over the, the exact required amount of beautifully constructed blanks amazing amazing and just did it like i i was just like okay yeah my student could have just as likely like not done this thing that's hard for them or done it and i was wow job like it was just it put me in the best mood i don't know that's 
awesome. It was so cool because it was not only like, you know, they met expectations and they did it, but they did it well and they were able to see their growth. And I was able to just make a huge deal over how proud I was of him because I was, I am. So anyway, that was That's fantastic. And it reminds me of when I worked uh, in a preschool full time and I was in the two-year-old classroom and uh we were potty training them and every time somebody went pee pee in the potty we would throw like a really big party (laughs) yes but the reed making version right Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Specializing in the finest assortment of oboes, clarinets, bassoons, and their accessories, RDG Woodwinds serves musicians from around the world. Their employees are all professional musicians who have a deep knowledge of the products they sell. RDG's repair shop has an international reputation with a combined 100 plus years of experience among the five repair technicians. Plain and simple, RDG provides excellent products and fabulous customer service. Visit them at rdgwoodwinds.com. They look forward to working with you. Hey, it's Jackie here. Just popping in real quick to say two things. One, of course, the second we stopped recording, I came to my senses and remembered that her name is Truvy, of course. (laughs) And second, that our wonderful guest, Susan Nelson, who you're about to hear from, wanted to be sure to shout out the title of Emily Joy Sullivan's piece that she composed for Susan and her students, From the Flower. So without further ado, let's get to Susan's interview. We are so happy to welcome to the podcast, Susan Nelson, Associate Professor of Bassoon and Assistant Dean of Undergraduate Studies at Bowling Green State University. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. It's great to be here. I would love to start by asking how you began playing the bassoon. Well, I I think my story probably lines up with a lot of people's where I started on something else first. So they started um, students in fifth grade uh, at my elementary school, and uh, I really wanted to play the flute, but there were too many people who wanted to play the flute. So they said, how about the clarinet? That sounds great. Try this mouthpiece. And so I started on clarinet and it was a great instrument. I love the clarinet. It did not really grab me, I guess, would be the best way to put it. I was not the best clarinetist in the group. And like I did practice at least every now and then, but it just wasn't my thing. And the junior high band was touring around the elementaries and they had one bassoonist and they did the whole thing where they introduced all the instruments. And of course the bassoonist stood and hold up their huge instrument that they've got. And all the little kids, even younger than me at the time were like, Whoa, that thing's so cool. So (laughs) if you're, you're bassoonist, you've ever done those school shows. That's usually the best part about it. And uh, I remember hearing it and thinking that it was just such an interesting sound and something really drew me to that. And my, my parents have always been really supportive of both me and my sister with anything we're doing. But my mom was very cautious because we were paying off my clarinet, you know, and she was like, we're almost paid off on your clarinet. Are you sure that you want to switch? And I, I, they tell me that I gave a very great reason as to why I wanted to switch to bassoon. And I don't know what I said because in my mind, I'm like, it looked cool and I kind of like the sound. Right. So I somehow convinced my parents and I switched to the bassoon um, in between fifth and sixth grade. Liking the sound is an important part yeah. of choosing an instrument. Yeah. I think that's a good reason. Well, yeah, it just it just grabbed me somehow. I don't know. You know, like you hear it and you love it. I don't know what to say about more much more about that. <laughs> but um, so I started bassoon, you know, after one year of clarinet playing. And um, the main thing I started with my junior high band director. I was in elementary, so my dad would take me to the junior high to have a lesson after school with the band director there. And um, he started me. He was a trumpet player, but he started me on the instrument and then 
started recommending that I go to the big bassoonist in town. So I grew up in Montana and, um, you know, it's not overly populated, but I did grow up in Billings, which is one of the biggest cities. And there was a particular teacher there that pretty much taught all the double reeds in the area. So I started taking from him and he soon retired. And then I um, took from a different teacher, Susan Wadsworth, who was the principal bassoonist of Billings Symphony at the time. So I, I had private lessons from an early stage, which was really great. And um, I've just always loved playing. I mean, I just knew, I don't think I knew in junior high necessarily that like bassoon was the thing I wanted to do moving forward. But, um, you know, getting into high school and everything, I just love the instrument and wanted to play in everything. I was the super nerd who played in absolutely anything that my ensemble directors would let me. I was like the bassoonist in the stands of the basketball game. I was in the, the, the pet band. Yeah, it was the worst. I was the nerdiest. I played in the jazz band. Like I stood there with the trombones playing the trombone part. And, you know, my, my ensemble directors, uh, bless them. They were the most supportive. Like the fact that they'd even let me do that was really great. Like a bassoonist in the pet band. Who would think of it? No, to hear me. But I just loved it. And I was there and I participated and I really had a great time and learned so much just from doing all those different things. So, I, yeah, I, from stage one, the sound grabbed me somehow, and I've just run with it since then. Well, shout out to the Inland Pacific Northwest. We do it right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love all those qualifiers. Yeah. Um, so talk us through embarking on your professional journey. Where do you go to school, your training, all that good stuff? Sure. So, um you know, in high school, you're thinking about where you, where you want to go for music school, if that's what you want to do. And I knew that music was what I wanted to do. And I don't know if I really knew kind of exact, like what exact facet of music I wanted to do, but I know that I wanted to play the bassoon. And so, um, you know, working with my high school band director and my private teacher, we uh, applied to several different universities and, um, I was really applying for bassoon performance since I knew that the instrument at least was what I really wanted to do. And in talking with my band director, I think like directing an ensemble type of thing wasn't something that I could really see myself enjoying. I'd already been teaching some private lessons at that point, which was very informal, like a friend of mine who wanted to learn the instrument or something like that. So I'd already kind of started down that path a little bit Perfect. and I liked that. But um, as far as like music education, kind of the idea of being a band director or an ensemble director didn't didn't really fit for for what I could see myself doing. Perfect. So um, I applied to a number of schools and I'll say uh, Carl Rath was a big influence in my upbringing because he teaches at a Red Lodge music festival there during the summers, not far from where I grew up. And I went there, I don't know, four or five years in a row. And he is just like such a... a, a pivotal person for a bassoonist in that area during the summertime like everyone wants to go and he's so much fun and you learn so much and so I did apply to University of Oklahoma for my undergrad in addition to some other places University of Kansas was one place I, I applied as well my parents really wanted me to stay in state because of course they love me and they didn't want me to go too far but um I just really wanted to go somewhere else and see new things and do other stuff. Like I was born and raised in Montana and a lot of people think of Montana and the Northwest in general, I think is kind of like outdoorsy sort of exotic, like, wow, you lived there. Why would you want to leave? But when you grow up there, you don't really know much different. It's just life and it's the way it is. And I wanted to go and experience other things. And so I ended up going to university of Kansas with Alan Hawkins doing a bassoon performance degree there. And the studio was not huge, which uh, like is a detriment in some ways, but also a huge benefit because again, I got to do everything. Okay. I mean, I played in musicals, I played in the orchestra, the band, the chamber music scene, like everything. I just dove my dove in there. Um, so I went to University of Kansas for my bachelor's degree in bassoon performance. And, you know, part of it was part of the deal a little bit with my parents because they were really great and helped support me financially as well through that was that um, I also did a bassoon, or not a bassoon, a business uh, degree, because my dad did not quite see music as a fruitful, stable type of career. And he was just really looking out for me and my future, right? So he wasn't anti-music or anything like that. And he was fine with me doing music as long as I also did something else if he was going to help support me. So I actually double majored because I, I was like, bassoon is the thing I really, really love. So I'm sticking with it. But I've always been pretty good with um, like administrative types of things, uh, math, all that stuff. So I did a, a, a business degree at the same time as my music degree. 
And then, um, you know, I was kind of like, well, still in music. That's still what I want to do after that. So I ended up going to University of Oklahoma after that with Carl, uh, which was really, really great. Um, I went for my audition there and just fell in love with the place. And of course, he's just a wonderful person and teacher. And the the fellow students there were really wonderful. It was a great time. And I was his uh, grad assistant. So I did do more teaching there, which I had also been doing during my undergrad. I did some private private lessons there. Mm-hmm. And um, I, from then, after my master's, it was kind of a crossroads, right? What am I going to do? Do I go into a doctoral program? Do I go out freelancing somewhere somehow do I take auditions which I did I took a number of auditions as well when I was graduating and um it was one of those I don't think I was quite ready for a doctoral program although it was in my mind of something that I might look into doing I wasn't wasn't like itching to get into a program because I'd been in school for however long already and I was ready for a bit of a break and just to like work for a while so um, I ended up landing um, a position through Carl and word of mouth a little bit here and there with uh, the Great Falls Symphony back in Montana. Mm. Their bassoonists felt ill, and so they they needed someone to fill in. So I went there and I filled in for one concert series, or I guess one concert cycle, I should say. And, um, you know, they were just kind of seeing how their bassoonist was doing. Uh, it was kind of a serious situation. And they ended up having me calling me back to fill in for the rest of that season. So it was in the spring, I think like March through beginning of May or something like that. And, um, you know, they had a resident trio at the time, which was really fun, but it's flute, oboe, bassoon. And um, there's not really a whole lot of repertoire for that specific instrumentation. So we were getting pretty creative and like transcribing some things. And they had a whole chamber concert series, which they still have today. But now they're a wind quintet, which they started the following fall. And I got to stay for that following year. They just they needed kind of they liked me enough when I subbed. Right. And I like moved from Oklahoma all the way back to Montana to do that. So, you know, I really was kind of going out on a limb. But playing and performing is what I was really liking to do. And so I played with them for about a year and a half. And one year of that was wind quintet and also teaching on the side. Mm-hmm. And honestly, to get into my doctoral program, it had been in my mind the whole time. But I had already taken my GREs a while ago. And some of the schools I was looking at required a GRE exam. And they're only good for five years. Right. Oh. So it was one of those. Oh, well, if I don't apply in this year, then I'm going to have to retake my GREs. Absolutely so, not. Yeah. I was like, that's a lot to go through already. Absolutely I did it not. the one time. I've also been out of the school scene for a little while now. I'd have to like do some heavy studying for that. Not that I couldn't, but it was like, I'm going to apply to these top schools that I'd already been thinking about and kind of see what happens. And I was very like thankful and lucky, I think, to get into University of Michigan the year I did with Jeff Lyman, because um, that particular year, I think there were like eight people auditioning for the one DMA position. Mm. So I felt so lucky, but I went, I had a great audition. Uh, he and I clicked pretty well right away. And um, I did my doctoral program there. So it was, uh, I would say, one of the toughest things I've ever done, that whole DMA program. But um, I don't know that I would want to go do it again. But it made me such a better player, performer, teacher, like all those things. Like it was so wonderful to go through. And I like the culture there. I think most DMA programs, you know, the, the culture, you all feed off of each other, all the DMA students, no, no matter what instrument you're in. Mm-hmm. And so we really had a lot of activity going on. And again, just huge learning curve. And so, you know, what do you do after a doctorate? You start applying for jobs. So I started applying for jobs after that, also keeping an open mind, looking for auditions. I had a a fairly large private studio in Ann Arbor while I was there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, teaching and and performing, I I wouldn't say that I've ever felt really geared in one direction versus the other. I love both. So I've always wanted to do both. And, um, you know, teaching throughout the years of various levels, I think everyone gets to certain age maybe or skill level that they really love working with. And so, you know, college level to me is really rewarding. And I love teaching all levels, but college level is really rewarding because you get to dive into a little bit more musicianship than maybe some of the younger levels. And I, I just find that really fun to to pull ideas out of other people and to help inspire them to figure out what might be good for that. So college level was kind of what I was going for. 
And I applied a number of places and I ended up getting a, a full-time adjunct position at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas, mm-hmm. which again, I was moving from Ann Arbor all the way down to Texas, which is ways away. So uh, I've never been one to shy away from some opportunity that came about and wherever that might be, that's where I'm going. So at that time I was married. I had met my husband back in Great Falls when I was working in the symphony and he moved out with me. We hadn't been, we weren't married yet, but he moved out to Michigan with me. And so it was just one of those, like, I hope you're ready to dive into the music scene. Um, I'm trying to get a job here. So you're just going to have to be ready to be flexible. And he's always been super wonderful and supportive and like, great, where do we need to go? So it was really wonderful that um, I got that position there. And I knew um, one of my faculty member, one of the other faculty members there, and I went to school together at University of Oklahoma. So it was nice because I instantly already felt a little bit more at home knowing someone. And the faculty there were all so welcoming. It was just such a great time. I was there for two years. And, um, you know, the students were really excited and honestly loved my whole time there. My husband had a hard time getting a job. So that was like the whole family situation was maybe not the best for us there. And so I was looking for more jobs after like towards the end of that second year, because SFA was great, but it was adjunct as well, Mm -hmm. which, you know, if you're not into the the college scene, that means you're basically part-time and I was full-time adjunct, which is great, but you don't maybe have as many benefits as some of the full-time tenure track folks and full-time tenure track. Once you have tenure, I mean, there's that job security, you know, built in. So that's usually college wise, what most people are looking for typically and and not absolutely everywhere, but, but uh, I would say most universities offer that. Mm-hmm. So I started applying some other places that positions come open, you know, it's cyclical. Someone gets a job one place and then it kind of trickles down and other people get jobs, other places. And so you just kind of, kind of keep an eye out and wait and look around and see what opens up. And I happened to, you know, inter- audition for our interview and and get um, Bowling Green State University position. So we moved back up here, which is only an, about an hour away from Ann Arbor, which is kind of funny. It's similar to where I had just been. We moved down to Texas. We moved back up to here. And um, we've been here ever since. So this is my end of my 11th year here. So we've been here a while now. Wow. So it's been a journey. Yes. I mean, it's a lot of travel. But if you want those opportunities, I, I think you just have to be open and ready. Yeah, for sure. Is there any more advice you can give to our aspiring higher education post, maybe in DMA, post DMA uh, musicians out there who are looking for their first or maybe second job? Sure. I mean, um, I think that you want to make sure your materials look really great. And I have to say, Jackie gave a great presentation at Meg Quigley about this. See if you want to chat with her about it sometime. <laughs> she has a great presentation. Honestly, I was, I, the whole time I was like, yes, yes, uh-huh, mm-hmm, yes, for sure. <laughs> and um, you want to make sure your materials look really great. And, you know, now is a great time to compile all of those things before you're actually looking to apply. Because once it's done and looking really smooth and you've consulted your teacher and other professors and made sure that things are looking great, it's just a matter of updating and keeping it up to date putting the detail into like a resume, a curriculum vita, which has everything in it, or, um, you know, like a repertoire list. If someone asks for something like that, it takes a lot of time to get all the detail in there and to get the formatting to look really good. And so if you can do that and just have it ready, I think that's really great. Um, the other thing is to just keep your eye open um, on all the usual places like CMS and, um, you know, various websites that will advertise when jobs come open. And not to limit yourself unless there's some big reason why you would need to, as far as like location or type of job. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a little scary to think about moving across the country. You know, if it's if that's maybe one of the first moves, even maybe you've done um, you, you don't know anyone there potentially. I mean, that is kind of scary, but uh, it could be such a great experience and you don't have to stay there. You know, if that if it didn't work out, you can always look for another opportunity somewhere else. But everything builds on everything else. So, like, I think about, you know, my kind of journey to where I am today. And I would not have had some of the opportunities I've had if I hadn't have taken some of those earlier ones. So thinking about moving from Michigan all the way down to Texas for an adjunct position. Yes, it was full-time adjunct, so that helps a lot, right? And of course, my my friend talked about the program, which helped a lot too. But it is a, it is a good program. So, 
Um, that was great as a big leap to go do that. But without having done that and having those two years of experience there, I don't think I would have been in the running for Bowling Green at all. Mm-hmm. You know, all my all my teaching prior to that had been adjunct, but like very minor here and there or private studio. Right. So, I, I mean, I don't think I would have been in the running. I can't say for sure. But I would think that, you know, all of that really influences your next steps even. So don't take something that you're not interested in. And I wouldn't apply for something that you're really not interested in. You don't want to take the time, waste your time, waste their time. If they imagine if they were to offer that job to you, can you see yourself there? I don't think you should apply for something unless you really would be interested in doing it. So that's my own personal take. I don't know if if others might think otherwise, like the practice of doing it, for example. But I I don't know if if it's it's a matter of time for everyone. Would you want like what if what if you were invited and you said, oh, never mind, I don't want to come and interview even. I don't think that would be a good thing to look into. Right. Can you tell us about Across the Grain? Oh, sure. So Across the Grain is a chamber group that a friend of mine and I started. He, um, Jeff Berudin, is a percussionist, and he and I went to University of Michigan together. We were in the doctoral program. And one of my um, things that I was really focused on there, because we we have to give three um, big performance recitals uh, as part of that program, Part of what I really wanted to do was to explore either genres that I hadn't really done, like styles of music, or chamber groups with instruments that I hadn't done a whole lot with. And one of those was percussion. I had not played a whole lot with percussion outside of just large ensembles. And uh, he and I were in some classes together, and we were friends. We'd study together, you know, so it like it worked out pretty well. And we started playing together. And um, it's just always fun. Like percussion is really exciting because there's so many different sounds you can get. And I think uh, bassoon combined with um, like marimba or vibraphone is really great. So my friend Jeff and I had started playing together a lot during our doctoral program. And I played on his recitals. He played on my recitals. And, you know, we um, went off, we graduated and we kind of went off on our own career paths after that. And then um, I just, I've always loved playing with percussion and it just kind of haunted me later. I just thought, you know, there's so much repertoire out there could be really great. And I think a lot of what we do today is collaborating with others in, in one way or in another. And I really like to get to know people by playing with them. So like when I've gone to new new universities, if I've gotten a new job or whatever, there's a new faculty member, I'll uh, invite them to play with me. So we'll do some chamber music together because I think just, you know, setting things up, rehearsing, working together in that way is a nice way to get to know someone other than, you know, going out for coffee or something. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was just thinking about also making a great experience professionally and who do I want to play with and what kind of music do I want to play? Cause there's so many options for us, but there's also, I, I mean, at least at the time that I was thinking about this you know, four or five years ago, there's not a, a broad variety of bassoon and percussion pieces, especially ones that you might want to go on the road with because some of them have such huge setups for the percussionist that, uh, I mean, you really have to make like a big to do about it to be able to perform it. So um, I just reached out to him and actually, I think this actually really started with the the bassoon chamber music composition competition, the BCMCC, because one of our winning pieces had percussion in it. And I thought, who would I love to collaborate with? And so I reached out to him and asked if he would come play for that particular recording. And he did. And we had a great time as always, as we've always had. We always get together and it's like we've never been apart, right? We just have a good time. Performing together is easy. Like we can just read each other really well. You know, I'm sure all everyone listening has had someone that, that they've had that same kind of relationship with. And so I just asked him if he wanted to do that more. And so we we started um, looking into pieces that we could tour around with. Jeff also worked at a university, um, really helped us as far as scheduling because um, you know, he, he was teaching some class classroom classes, but teaching at the university gives you a little bit of flexibility because it's not Monday through Friday, eight, eight through five or whatever. So we were able to get together and tour a little bit and we had a recording project planned and we commissioned a number of pieces. Um, and then, you know, as, as everyone's world was totally upturned with like COVID and the pandemic, we ran into some snags with our duo that there. So his, his, his life changed a little bit, his job switched over and like, he's doing great, but he's teaching public school. And so that's a little harder for us to get together. So he's actually bowed out of our duo, which is so sad because I love playing with him, but we have a number of pieces that we commissioned that we were getting ready to premiere and record 
during and then the pandemic hit. So I'm actually getting back into that project now with his blessing. And I have a, another percussionist I'm working for, not working for, working with another percussionist I'm working with. We kind um, of do work for them though. You we know do what I mean? A little, yeah. Like, I mean, <laughs> next thing you know, you're like, what can I move for you? How do I hook up the symbol? Tell me what you need, right? <laughs> we pack up and we're ready. And then they have five <laughs> instruments to move. Yeah. Jackie knows. She knows. Jackie does. Know. Except I say, you chose yours. I chose mine. You don't make my reads. Have fun schlepping. I'm driving separately. Love you. <laughs> nice. You know, I one of my best friends during my master's program was a flutist and her husband was a percussionist. And I would see her all the time. She'd be there early with him. She'd be there late with him, packing stuff in and out. And and I get it now, how, you know, doing these duos with percussionists. I mean, once they're set up, it's great, but it takes a while sometimes, depending on how many instruments. Mm-hmm. So this percussionist I'm working with, Colin McCall, is uh, another grad from U of M. Uh, not at the same time I was there, but he's uh, in Ann Arbor area now, freelancing and teaching. And so he came down this last fall um, and uh, played one of these pieces that Jeff and I had commissioned from our um, jazz saxophone faculty member, um, David Bixler. So we we played that piece together and it was a little like, let's let's see how this works and if this will go. And I mean, he's great to collaborate with as well. So we're actually going to be continuing down that path. Um, currently, at least more coming up, I have a faculty recital in March here at Bowling Green and he's going to come and play with me again. And we're premiering a piece that Jenny Brandon wrote for across the grain duo so it's called wooden stone and so we're going to be playing that this next month and it will be the world premiere and we've got a, a few others that, that are kind of in the works so I, i'm envisioning long term if i don't know if colin has will agree to this or not i haven't asked him but um you know doing some sort of recording project because we really do want to record those and um share that you know and i think most people uh in the double re community at least professionals would know of jenny brandon's music by now mm-hmm. because she's written so much for us we have such a nice um kind of uh pool of music from her and this is going to be i think another really good one it's it's beautiful it has um vibes and marimba and tom-toms and um like a wooden wind chime it's got some nature elements to it so i think it's going to be a really great piece that hopefully other people will want to play this would probably be a great time for me to ask you about the bassoon chamber music composition competition could you tell us more about that Sure. Yeah. We say the BCMCC because it's BCMCC. a bit of a mouthful. Yeah. BCMCC. And even that's a little hard sometimes to go, wait, where, where, how many C's and where does the M go? I admit, um, I did read it while I was saying it. I'm sure. I, was yeah, I, I, I usually have to slow down a little just to pronounce it correctly as well. It's okay. It's okay. You get used to it. And then you, it kind of rolls off the tongue after a while. So um, this was an organization that was started by Paula Brusky, who's a bassoonist um, and she's in Wisconsin area. She um, had started this, uh, you know, just as a like an outlet for more repertoire for our instrument and specifically chamber music. And so she um, it, it she did a lot of groundwork for the organization. She, um, you know, made it a business and also a nonprofit organization. So she went through all of that. And then she had an injury at one point and was looking for someone to take over because she she truly believes in the organization and, of course, the mission. And um, I was one of the people that she chatted with and uh, just happened to work out really well. And I, I took over that organization, I think, right as I got the job at Bowling Green. And so if you know Bowling Green State University, we, we, we do a lot of things, but we do have a lot of new music here. We have a Mid-American Center for Contemporary Music. We have a big new music festival every fall. And the fact that this was a, an organization that was putting out a call for commission, not commissions, but for calling for new uh, music. You know, whether that involves extended techniques or not, just newly composed. And so um, it was just a really good fit. And um, it's been really great. It's been a little on hiatus lately because of pandemic and other professional things uh, impacted from that. But it is something that I do want to get back into. We've run a number of different uh, comp- competitions for chamber music, and we've also done some for solos. So we paired up with Meg Quigley um, twice now. And so it's something that, you know, we might look into doing. We'll have to chat. But, um, you know, we're happy to to try and expand our repertoire. 
It involves, uh, you know, online submissions from various places around the world. You know, every competition, we have some different kind of guidelines for that. And we do have a board of directors as well. And um, we've had a number of really great pieces come through that that organization. One of the biggest ones is Jenny Brandon's Colored Stones, which is actually how I got to know her, which has been really great because now she's on our board and, you know, I commissioned a piece for her for bassoon and percussion. Like it's just a really great community in that way. So that's something I'm looking forward to diving back into. Um, Probably in this upcoming year, we're going to run some sort of competition, whether it's for solo or chamber music. So we'll be putting more up, you know, on social media and our website and all of that about that. Okay. I'm going to brag on you for a second in the context of a question. Um, So uh, recently you performed with two students at the Meg Quigley Vivaldi Bassoon Competition and Symposium in Tucson. And um, it was really cool because I feel like in those conference environments, understandably, a lot of times we're like, what do I want to play? Or what is my creative activity that I need to put out for my colleagues? And I was so impressed that you went, how can I create an opportunity for my students? And it was unique and it was humbling, quite frankly, because it it was just so um, treating graduate students as as colleagues in training and how can I, yes, create an opportunity for them as people who want to pursue this in the future. So I'd love to ask about that particular project, but maybe as a vehicle for you to talk about who you are as a teacher and your philosophy and your approach, because I just thought it was such a really cool effort and likely indicative of who you are in the bassoon studio. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, I got a lot of compliments at the at the symposium about, oh, that was so great. You performed with your students. And like, I, I think it's great, too. But I I, it, I was surprised, I guess, at how, I don't know, uh, impressed, I guess, or, or how maybe unusual that seemed to some people. I'm not really sure how to clarify that. But, um, you know, to me, I, I feel very thankful, like last year, this year, up, this upcoming year, I have some some students that are of a really great quality, right? Like they've been working really hard, they've been studying and um, practicing so much. Their level of playing is at the point now where I feel like we really need to take them to this next level. It's not just studying and doing their degree recital or like a chamber music thing. Like how do we get them out into or involved with the professional world? And so some of that too is um, the fact that Meg Quigley was having their competition coming up. One of my students was um, submitting to do the competition. So she was making her recordings and all of that. And in my mind, a little bit of it, of that was, I need to get my students to the symposium because that's a great place too, because it's, it's not uh, geared more towards just professionals. It's really geared towards like the, the wide breadth of everyone who plays our instrument, right? Like students, please come. We have these competitors. You can listen to that. You can learn. We have all these classes. Like it's really like all encasing. And I thought that was a great welcoming environment to make sure that my students were there. And so I couldn't bring everyone, um, you know, financials and all of that or availability, but I thought what would be a great way to sort of guarantee that my students would come other than maybe my student, you know, advancing in the competition. And, um, you know, the, the proposal deadline was coming up last spring, you know, May, whatever it was that the deadline was. And one of my students brought that up and said, oh, this deadline's coming up. And we started talking about like going to the symposium and, you know, if we, if like, if I wanted to submit something to present a performance or whatever that might be, and I was just thinking, you know, a commission with all three of us would be great because bassoon chamber music is really fun. Quartets, there's a million quartets and we all love playing that. There's less trios, um, but trios are nice. And there have to be three of us that we're all really, really excited about this. So we talked a little bit about um, what would we play? What would we submit? You know, we wanted to stick with some of the mission of Meg Quigley, which is diversity, of course. And so thinking about if we commissioned, who might we want to commission from? And we kind of came up with a list of things. And then I said, okay, but if we're going to do this, you know, we're going to have to move a little quickly <laughs> because they hadn't hadn't really been through the commission process before, which is a thing that a lot of us do these days. We talk with a composer and we want a piece written and we have, you know, a time, time frame of how long we want that piece to be or the instrumentation or certain inspirations we'd like for the piece. And, um, that's that's like our world now 
I mean, not everyone commissions, but it's, it's just part of what we do. It's not an unusual thing anymore. Um, you know, think about these, like the BCMCC and calls for pieces and competitions in that way. Uh-huh. Uh, now I think a lot more people individually reach out and work with composers than ever before. Uh-huh. And so it was a matter of also a bit of instruction for my students so they could learn what that process is like. And so I really, uh, made them do most of the work. Honestly, it was, it was like, I got to sit back and really enjoy the whole process because I said, you need to reach out to you know, X, Y, and Z composer. Emily Joy Sullivan was actually the first one we reached out to and she agreed, which was great. That's nice. That doesn't always happen, you know? And so like we gave her our timeline. We're looking at, you know, we're submitting this proposal. So we'd like the music by whatever date so that we can actually rehearse it and work with you if there's some edits that are needed to be able to then perform it at the symposium again, if we're accepted, because we didn't know yet. And so um, it was a lot of them saying, okay, how do I reach out to this person? What do I need to say? What details do we need to put into this particular request? Mm-hmm. And the fact that there's like a contract that you work out with a composer was, you know, they didn't didn't know. So, I mean, it was really great on that side of things so that I could help them walk them through the process of a commission. And then the best part is that I got to play with them, too, which I mean, I just like chamber music. That's always always been a thing I've enjoyed. I've chatted already. And so, um, you know, not only do I get to play chamber music, but I get to play it with my students who are really doing a wonderful job on the instrument. And then they also get to go with me to the symposium and get into the professional world more that way, which it was funny because I took four students from my studio, two others joined us. And uh, I think I heard several comments while we were there of like, man, BGSU is just everywhere. They're all over the place. And I was like, there's only four students, but I mean, I'm glad that they are really immersing themselves into this particular experience. Yeah. So, I mean, that was really my goal. Like I would have loved to have brought everyone, um, you know, uh, but the, those that did go, we had a really great experience and I haven't really taken a student group anywhere like that. I've like, we've driven places, but I've not flown with a student group before. So that was like a new experience for me to figure out all of the, the logistics with getting there. And two of them had never flown before. So yeah, it was just like, honestly, it turned into an even more amazing experience that I had anticipated because of some of the students' backgrounds and what they'd experienced already or not. And the symposium itself was just kind of magical. I don't know if anyone else felt that way. From what I hear, I think most people did. It was just such a really great time. We learned a ton. We, We went and, you know, we performed the first night, which was a little crazy to get there and have a rehearsal and like be ready. Yeah. But that also meant that we get to relax and enjoy the entire rest of the time yeah. and like attend everything we could possibly try to attend. Mm-hmm. And so like, I, I mean, we're still talking about it here. We come back, we still reference make quickly at various things when we bring it up and like, oh, that was great to meet so-and-so or wow, did you hear this thing in this master class? So, I mean, we really, really enjoyed it. And, um, I have to say, like, I, it started out as a, this could be a really good learning experience for my students on one hand, also great collaboration and just fun to get to play with them. And then it turned into like an even bigger, almost overly amazing experience from everyone's perspective, I think. So, I mean, it's something I would definitely want to do again. You know, I, I mean, I think it was just so great. And um, I don't know where well we'll go from here, but um, I'll say one of those students has gone on to commission someone else already. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think it's just like now they're like, okay, we can do this. And the networking alone. I mean, I I hear all sorts of things from them, from people they've been talking to on social media and all sorts of other other platforms. So, um, you know, it's just kind of catapulted them a little bit, I think, in their own careers. And I've always, you know, I've always loved playing with my students. I do that in my lessons a lot. You know, I play with them or demonstrate things for them so they can really hear a difference between maybe more like what I'm hearing from them and more like what they maybe want to do or play with them for intonation purposes even. But it's really fun to get to put that into the more like real world experience. So like we have a a reading session here every fall at Bowling Green where Toledo Symphony is contracted to come to our campus because Toledo is not that far away from us. And they come and they... um play they sight read and and record at the same time some pieces by our student composers so those composers get to really like see their piece in action and what might work and what might not and of course they get a little feedback like i couldn't understand what this meant on the score you know and they have we they're professional conductor working in that way as well 
And this last fall in particular, they the they asked um for some bassoonists because uh they had some conflicts among their their typical personnel. And so I ended up playing principal. One of my grad students who came to make Quigley played second. And one of my former students who's still around in the area got to play Contra. And Amazing. so like yeah, those are the things that I'm like, this is just so great because it's, you know, the repertoire may not have been, you know, some big bassoon solo or anything like that, but it's definitely those things that, um, you know, really put it into perspective. And I can see like the results of my efforts as well. Like what, what I'm doing is like very rewarding to me to see that, that my students are are getting out there and doing things and succeeding. So I think like as a teacher, that's the biggest thing. You know, you see the week to week progress, which is also really great when you're teaching someone. And then, you know, the, the end goals of like a performance or, you know, uh, audition for something. But then when you actually see them like doing a professional thing, it's really great. So I like to, it, as much as I can, try and get those those activities going. Absolutely. Um, I had the pleasure of hearing you last summer at the IDRS conference in Boulder, and you are a monster bassoonist. <laughs> Thanks. It was such an awesome recital. So I would love to hear your perspective on how you prepare for high-pressure performances. Um, you know, what is your process like going into something like that? Sure. I mean, everyone's so different when you're preparing for a performance and how you react to yourself, right? So like, I've always been a very relaxed, chill type of person. Like that's always been me. And I would say uh, a lot of bassoonists kind of go in that route. But when you go to performing, it is a broad gamut as far as how your body reacts. You know, just working with my students, it's very interesting to see see how that works. I'm a big believer in the preparation before the performance. You know, if you can't play your piece the day before the performance, it's not going to be perfect in the performance. And really, I have to anticipate that whatever happens in my performance is probably going to be less quality than what I'm doing in the practice room because of the pressure. Right. So I make sure that um, I really like rely upon myself and trust myself in a performance. I can't fix things or or dissect what I'm doing in the moment, because that's when you get the snowball effect where one thing goes wrong and then another thing goes wrong and then more things go wrong because you're thinking about that first thing. So I really make sure that my practice is uh, very consistent and solid and that I can really play that piece up and down backwards and forwards before I go into the performance. And so I make sure that I'm at that stage two weeks before the performance or more, but um, anything like shorter in time frame than that, it's just going to be a gamble if it happens or not. So if there's, you know, there's always, always something that you're working on all the way up to the performance. Maybe it's a technical spot or like the perfect response on a note out of whatever read you have for that day. <laughs> um, so there's always some, something that you have to really think about or control a little bit with those factors that we have having a read instrument and everything. But I really try not to have to think too hard about the interpretation that I want to give or the technique that's involved because I've put all of that work into the practice room and I've really just been kind of running and hitting spots for the week or two beforehand so that it's just, I'm doing it again. There just happens to be people in the room. So, I mean, I've, I've done really well in general throughout my whole performing career of being fairly relaxed for a performance. And I honestly think a lot of that is just, that's my personality in general. Like I'm very chill. And, um, you know, some people just have a harder time with that. So what I will usually talk through a lot with my students, number one, the more you perform, the more comfortable you get. And you're always going to be nervous. You're never going to get rid of that. I don't think anyone goes into a performance not feeling nervous to some degree. But the more you do it and the more you get in front of people, the more comfortable you get with how you're going to feel in that situation. And then you know what to anticipate and what maybe factors of your playing are a little bit compromised. You know, whether it's like breathing becomes a problem. That's a big one for us when people get nervous, right? Or maybe you have a hard time focusing and that technical spot is a little trickier for some reason. So, I mean, just knowing and anticipating what might happen. So, you know, for me, breathing is usually the thing I have. I just, you get that nervous feel and like taking a deep breath is a lot harder when I'm put in that situation. So I make sure in my practice that I plan out all of my breaths and that I mark every single one. 
And that if there's even one that I have a hard time getting through from one point to the other in my practice, it's not going to happen in the performance because I already know myself and that that's what's hard for me. So I'm going to make sure that I have some sort of plan that is going to be, um, you know, maybe the backup plan. Like if I'm feeling it in the performance that there's a good spot, at least that I could breathe, but it would be great if I didn't have to. So that I have that backup plan that if I need to take it, I will. And it's going to sound okay because I pre-planned and I know that it's going to be okay. So I think getting to know anyone, getting to know what happens to you in those high pressure situations and pre-planning for it. So for me, it's just um, really putting in that practice time, relying upon yourself, being able to play the music to the level that you want to be able to play it and anticipating, you know, what, what is going to happen to me in that performance so that I can hopefully preemptively come up with solutions you know, and so also before going out to perform, kind of going through a mental checklist, like I just kind of remind myself, like, what what do I really want to focus on? And for me, for me personally, since it's breathing, I'll kind of do a deep breath and just kind of an example to myself of what do I need to make sure I'm doing when I'm out there, like and physically do it, not just tell myself. And so then when I go out there, you know, it's just a matter of like making sure I'm taking those nice deep breaths when I need them and assuring myself that everything else is going to be fine because... I've been practicing it and I can do it the last couple of weeks. I've been doing it. And it's just allowing, letting go in a way and trusting myself that I know I can do it. So, and then reads are a whole other thing, you know, just making sure that I've got a, a number of good ones. So I, I never plan with the, this is my performance read. I think that's the most nerve wracking. I always make sure that I've got at least three or four, but three options. So if someone took one of my, one of those three reads, three or four reads, and like smashed it. And I could be like, well, that, that was my favorite. That's the one I was going to use because it just feels just right. I'll have a couple other options, right. That I know I could perform that performance on. So it's a little low stress in that um, I have a variety. And even if the weather changes or something like that, like I'll have something that works. So I don't have to be so concerned about the one read that does the high F or whatever it might be. Right. I've got a number of them that will do it. And so I don't have to be so concerned about it. You're always going to have a favorite and hopefully that's still your favorite that day. And hopefully it works perfectly that day. But I always test all of those reads the morning of the performance and see which one feels the best. Whatever one feels the best is the one I'm really going to be able to express myself the best on. And knowing that all of them will capably do all the things that I need to do for that performance, then I can just really relax and pick the one that feels the best and then remind myself to breathe. (laughs) And then allow myself to let out what all, all the work I've been putting in. What advice do you have for a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours? Um, I think the biggest thing is, well, kind of two big things. I would say the first is work really hard. It takes a lot of hard work to really have any career in music in any facet, let alone mine. But I would say you just have to really be invested in what you're doing and dive in wholeheartedly and say yes to everything you possibly can while managing your time well. I think a lot of people overbook themselves these days, especially students, and can't really get to maybe a higher quality of musicianship that they could because they're bogged down in some other activities maybe, which, you know, just think of what are your priorities, what's really important to you, and really diving into that. And then the other thing is to be really open-minded you never know what opportunity is going to come. You know, you might have this idea of, well, I only really want to like perform in whatever type of venue or whatever type of ensemble, but you never know what comes of some of these things and these opportunities that present themselves to you. So, you know, you might get some sort of a gig that's like lesser quality in your mind, but who knows who hears you there, who then knows someone else somewhere else and then they're going, oh, I heard that bassoonist and that was really great at whatever place that was. And, you know, we're looking for someone to do this thing. And so things snowball from there. You know, a lot of it is the hard work you put in, but then a lot of it is kind of the relationships and word of mouth as well. I mean, I I don't, I don't feel my career has been handed to me in any way, shape or form. I've worked really, really hard. But I will say some of my opportunities like Great Falls Symphony, happened because I was recommended from someone. So Carl Rath recommended me because he has those Montana connections and knew the the director at the time and said, I think she's really great. She, she'd fit in. She, I mean, it was a sub position, right? 
And I had to kind of drop everything I had going in Oklahoma and fly out there. And I was like, but this is what I want to be doing. I want to play. I want to do all this. So I'm just going to go out on a limb. I'm open-minded, take this opportunity and a whole like year and a half of an excellent experience and career building time occurred because of that. So I think um, you can't be too picky in the beginning at all later in life, maybe. Um, And then, you know, just being open for anything, making the time for even the little things, because it can lead to a lot of really wonderful, fruitful uh, events in your career. Susan, this has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. Thanks so much. It's been great to chat with you both. We hope you enjoyed that episode. We know that you did. Thank you for joining us. If you want to rate and review on iTunes, that would be fabulous. Five stars only. Oh, yes, five stars only. Talk to us on social media. We always love to hear from you. And be sure to join us for the next episode. Galit, who will be joining us? Ooh, this is an exciting one. I mean, they're all exciting ones, but this one's super cool. Uh, we have solo English horn of the Philadelphia Orchestra, Elizabeth Star Masunia. So, Tune in next time. And in the meantime, uh, go uh, tend your roses in your rose garden and don't get pricked by a thorn. Spectacularly said. Thank you so much. Go make (laughs) reads.